One of my wife Shainu's guilty pleasures is HGTV. Now, uh, we don't particularly have HGTV at our house, and I think that honestly that's a very good thing because I'm imagining that if we had HGTV at the house, Shainu would never do anything but watch that all day, right? I can sort of picture myself coming home at the end of the day and going, how was work today? And she's saying, I didn't go. And then me saying, you know, how are the kids? Did they eat? Nope, they haven't eaten. And then I ask, you know, why? What happened? You know, House Hunters was on, right? And so that's sort of the conversation I picture myself having. And I'm not exaggerating here. Uh, her ideal vacation for her would be us going to a hotel, and she wouldn't need to see anything, wouldn't need to go out, don't need to go to the pool. She's literally said, here, you take the kids, I'm going to watch HGTV, right? That is her ideal vacation. Now, uh, I know that out of those shows, and I, I don't know the channel well, the ones that are particularly engaging are the ones where, and you, you've likely seen them, they take this beat down, busted up, broken up, eyesore, fixer-upper of a house, and by the end of the episode, I mean, this thing is transformed. It's gorgeous and it's beautiful and now you're lusting in your heart for this home and you wish you lived there and they would come do the same thing to your house. I mean, th that's what you're hoping for by the end of the episode, right? They take this thing that is just a total mess, nobody would want to go near, and by the end, it's unbelievable. It's beautiful, right? Now, I personally don't care much for HGTV, but even I am sort of drawn in and sucked in by that because there's something really powerful to sort of that before and after, and, and that's what I think the secret sauce of the show is, right? The, the whole thing that draws you in is, here's what it looked like before, and here's what it looks like after. And that, I think I could spend all day watching, right? So, for example, I, I just Googled some of these shows, and, and I'll show you a picture of a house. This is sort of the before, right? Just a plain old house looks like any one of our houses. And then the show comes on, and by the end, this is what it looks like, right? So they, they do that in 30 minutes, right? So... <laughs> So you, you see that and you go, that, that's unbelievable, right? And another one is on the top, just looks like any normal home. And then by the time they're done, the bottom is what, I mean, you get so pulled into that because there's some kind of incredible power to the before and after. And whoever thought of this before and after marketing thing is a genius because they use it in everything, right? It's, it's not just homes, right? If, if you want to talk about weight loss, Right? You, you've got this picture of an unhealthy, overweight, um, obese person, and, and in the very next shot, I mean, they're fit, and they're trim, and they're tan, and their hair's grown back, and they're happy. Everything about them is, is suddenly beautiful. Uh, and it's all kinds of things. If you want to talk about working out, you've got this skinny, scrawny, emaciated person. Next thing you know, they're buff and beautiful. Or, or, or you talk about makeovers and they do the same thing. Just a plain Jane and she gets dolled up and prettied up and, and suddenly it's, it's transformation. In fact, there was a, a video that went viral. In fact, you'll see it. A, a, a man who was a homeless veteran. He was an alcoholic living on the streets. They got a hold of him and they started cutting his hair and blow drying and, and, and changing his clothes so that by the end, now this man who looked like one thing now looked completely different. Went viral all over the internet. Because why? Just, just seeing that, going from here's what this was to here's what it is, is so alluring, so engaging, so attractive to us. There's something really powerful about the idea that you can take something that is broken down and busted up and in need of repair and in disrepair and, and see it completely, utterly transformed. That 
is the effect that Colossians 1 verses 21 to 23 has. That if you actually get what's going on in the passage and you let it soak in, what it does for you is what that video does for you, is what those images does for you. It shows you the before and the after. In Colossians 1 verse 21 to 23, Paul is sort of the host of the episode. And what he's trying to say is, here is the dramatic before and after for the Christian. Here's who you were and what you look like and what your life was like. And here now, in light of Jesus, is who you are and what your life looks like and, and what you're supposed to be. And so this is what he does in these three verses. Let me show it to you. It starts in verse 21. So if you've got a Bible, you can look there. Otherwise, it'll be on the screen. And verse 21 is the before pick. Right? This is sort of who you were. This is your past. This is BC. This is before Christ broke into your life. This is what you look like. And frankly, it's not pretty at all. Your BC is this, before Christ, verse 21, and you who were once alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds. Hear me, Seven Mile Road. Every one of you who can hear my voice, before Christ breaks into your life, this is who you are. You're not a good person. You're not a blank slate. You are alienated from God, hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. Now to get you to where we are in this passage, let me just remind you of what came before. Right? If you're just jumping in with us, you're jumping in with us at verse 21. Let me tell you what came before. In the last few weeks, as we've been working through Colossians, Paul has literally been singing the praises of Jesus. And his song has been this high, exalted, Jesus above all things song. In fact, if you remember with us as we walk through 15 to 20, you remember Paul speaking of Jesus. And what he's saying? He said, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. And that he's the firstborn of all creation, meaning over and above all things, from the biggest planet to the smallest molecule, all things, the text said, were made by Jesus and through Jesus and for Jesus. Everything exists for Jesus. And then the text went on to say, and he is the head of the body, the church, and he's the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile all things, whether in heaven or on earth. That was the massive song that Paul started singing in 15 to 20. And what he gives you is a vision of Jesus so big and huge it could fill the universe. And this massive, global, universal, cosmic vision of Jesus, 15 to 20. And now in 21, he brings that all down to you. And he says, here... In light of this global, cosmic, universal, massive Jesus and what he is doing throughout the whole universe and world, now in 21, how does that relate to you and, and you and me and us? Right? What he's, what he's doing in 21 is he's going from 30,000 feet in the air, 30 million miles in the air, and this global view to now coming down to the ground to your level and saying, and here's how that connects with you. So let's talk about Jesus and his death and what that means for you. And so verse 21 starts, and you. So he wants to talk about you and he says, let's start at the start and begin at the beginning. Let's talk about who you were before Christ. Who you were in the before picture. Who you were B.C. And frankly, again, it is not pretty what he has to say about us. What he does is he sort of holds up the mirror to you and what you're about to see is hard to look at. 
right? It's sort of like when you wake up in the morning and your eyes are still sealed shut with the eye crusties and your hair is unkempt and you've got the torn sweats on and your breath is terrible and nobody should ever see you at that moment, right? Well, Paul holds that picture up for everyone to see. And he says, you need to take a good, long look. And here's the thing. You can't wash yourself up. You can't clean yourself up. You can't pretty yourself up. This is your state unless Jesus gets involved. Here's who you are. Here's who you were before Christ. He says, and you were once alienated. That's the first word he chooses to describe your condition. My condition, apart from grace, apart from God, we were alienated. That is, that you came out of the womb, and I know some of you were born into Christian homes, and you went to church, and and all the rest. I want you to hear the scriptures saying, you came out of the womb and took your first breath alienated from God, separated from God, estranged from God. You were divorced from God. All of us were. That a great chasm existed between God and us, and we had irreconcilable differences between this God. That we were a people who by nature and by every choice thereafter confirmed that we were out of step and out of harmony with God. God went this way and we went that way. God did this, we did that. At every step, at every moment, we have been out of step with God, alienated from God. He goes on to say, not only were you alienated, but you were hostile in mind, he says. And you were once alienated and hostile in mind. Meaning, not only were you away from God, you wanted nothing to do with God. You were born from your first breath with enmity towards God. You were born into the rebellion. You weren't born with a blank slate, but with a black slate. You weren't born at neutral. You were born in the negative. You were born at enmity with God, that everything about him you were at odds with, conflict with. Now, I want you to hear that, because some of us would think that we were at best neutral. We weren't good or bad. Maybe we were at zero. And the scriptures here are saying, no, God claims to be supreme. And your every choice seems to dictate that you want that spot, that you want your way. That he's supreme and your responsibility to submit and to obey him. And yet every action of your life just confirms that you buck against that supremacy. That rule and that reign. That's not something you welcome into your life. In fact, you resist it with every fiber of your being. That the natural man, that all of us born into the world, are hostile towards God. And you think of that. I don't think a great case needs to be made to consider whether or not the world as we know it is hostile towards God, right? If God hasn't broken in by His Spirit and in grace into your life, the world as we know it is is what? Warm and favorable towards God or hostile towards God, right? We, We live in a culture in a day in a world where our world doesn't even believe He exists. He's got to fight for existence in our day let alone whether or not we're hostile towards them. Or you think of anything the Scripture says, almost about anything, and whether it's warmly received or hostile in our world. If a Christian comes, as the Scripture says, and says, Jesus Christ and Him alone is God, and there is no other way to God but through Christ, warmly received or hostile. Or or you take what the Scriptures would teach about anything, about sex, who gets to have sex and when, or marriage, and who gets to have marriage, warmly received or hostile. Life, when it begins, 
how it can end, warmly received or hostile. I mean, you could go through the list and over and over and over again, the scripture is saying we live in a world where by our natural condition, we are hostile in our minds towards God. And I want you to hear this. This is not just about the big, bad, unbelieving culture out there. This is about all of us in here. In fact, let me read you this one verse from Romans 8. It says, Romans 8, verse 7, For the mind that is set on the flesh, meaning what I want to do, the mind that is set on what I want to do is hostile towards God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile towards God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Meaning from the moment you and I took breath, we were born into this slavery towards sin where we did not submit to Him, nor did we want to, nor could we. Every fiber of our being was in opposition, in conflict, in estrangement, in our divorce with God. And I want you to hear this hostility is not just this intellectual thing, hostile in mind, as if we've got an intellectual problem, but rather that that hostility expresses itself in the things that we do. Right? It's not just a mind thing, it's that this hostility is working itself out in the things that we do. And what do we do? Well, the next phrase in Paul's verse tells us, We do evil behavior, evil deeds, doing evil deeds. And you were once alienated, hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. That from this core that was opposed to God, at enmity with God, at odds with God, you and I carried out the works of being opposed to God, namely evil deeds. We were bad to the root, bad trees that then bore rotten fruit. That's who we were. And again, I'd say to you, if you're honest with yourself, I don't know that a great case needs to be made for that either. If you were to look back at the resume of your life, I don't know that anyone needs to convince you that evil deeds has been a part of that. In fact, some of you who even now are Christians, as you think back to your life and its deeds, the things that would be bullets on your own story and resume, I mean, if if the doors were opened, to where the skeletons in your closet are hiding. I mean, if you could feel even the slightest bit of guilt or shame or fear from that kind of a thought, then you get that all of us have been marked by evil deeds. Things that to this day haunt us. Things that to this day are are things we deeply regret and despise and abhor. And, And the scripture is saying, in your natural state, you were born alienated from God, at enmity with him, doing evil deeds. Now, here's what I need you to see. Paul's aim here in having you look back and see who you once were and holding this mirror up to your face is not to rub your nose in your sin and to sort of make you morbidly look at who you once were. So then why does he do it? Why does he show you this this picture of who you were? And I think it's the same thing we said from the beginning, which is there's an incredible power to the before and after, right? It does something to us. For for example, if I were to show you a picture of this woman, if this works, yeah, if I were to show you that picture, you just see a normal woman, nothing to write home about, nothing spectacular, nothing that strikes you or engages you. But if I were to show you the picture of her before, right, now suddenly you get the effect of that. You get what it does. Right? It, it's almost like you begin to get the amazing after only if you've seen the before. 
And it's in seeing the before that you're astounded by the after. It's in seeing the before and who this person was that now you begin to fully appreciate who this person is now. And that's what Paul is doing. In verse 21, he shows you the before so that you might be astounded by the after. In verse 21, he showed you the before so that in verse 22, he could show you the after. And here's what verse 22 says. In 22, he says, He has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. You were once alienated and doing evil deeds at enmity with God, but now he has reconciled you in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. You know what Paul is? Paul is sort of like the host of the show. And he's saying, here's what Christian looked like before. And then he's saying, but now here's Christian and how he looks now. And Christian walks onto the stage and now you see that this person who was once marked by being alienated and doing evil things is now, the scripture says, holy and blameless and above reproach. Oh, Seven Mile Road, would you, would you hear that with me for a second? You are being described there. Right? 30,000 feet now down to the ground level. And Paul is looking at you in the face and saying, I know who you were, but I'm telling you now, because of what Jesus did, you are holy. And you are blameless. And you are above reproach. I mean, it, it should not get used to us. We shouldn't feel common with the thought that those kinds of words are now used to describe you and me. That when the Father would look at you now in Christ, he would see you as holy. You think of that word. This word that was used to describe God. Holy, holy, holy. As in completely other, completely different, perfect and distinct. And now that word is shared with you. That you're holy. Or this idea of blameless. You're blameless. That is without spot, without stain, without blemish. Perfect and pure. That now the word that God thinks of when he speaks of your after is blameless. Or then even this word above reproach. And now this is a, a legal term. Sort of like if you were standing before a judge. If you're above reproach, it's the idea that there's no charge that can be said against you. There's no case that can be made against you. No accusation against you that can stick anymore. And you think of that. The scripture says we have an enemy called Satan whose constant job is to accuse. He's the accuser of the brethren. And yet, Paul is saying, now there's no accusation to make against you. No charge that would stick. No thing that would hold up in God's court. You are above reproach. And the question you should be asking yourself is, is if all of that is true, if I was once alienated, and, and if I was doing evil things, and if this is who I was, hostile towards God, and now I am holy, and blameless, and above reproach, the question you have to ask is, how did that happen? Right? When you see the house in one moment, and then see it in the next, your question is, how did that happen? When you see the before of the person, and then see the after of the person, your question is, how did that happen? And so the question is, how did we go from verse 21, alienated, hostile, and doing evil, to verse 22, holy, and blameless, and above reproach? And Paul says, here's how that happened. He says, it's because Jesus Christ has now reconciled you in his body of flesh by his death. 
Jesus Christ died to reconcile you, to change your before and make it a new after. Jesus Christ did that. He says, through His dying work of reconciliation, you have been completely transformed. Now, I need you to stay with me. What is that word reconciliation? One pastor has helpfully said, the Bible has a lot of these big words that try and explain to us the things that God has done for us in Christ. The Bible has a bunch of words to try and explain to you, here's who you were and here's what Jesus did for you. So, so one of those words, for example, is justification. When, when the Bible throws around justification, the idea is the picture is you and I, the sinner, standing before God as our judge in a court. We're guilty criminals. And in justification, it's that you've now been declared righteous because of what Jesus did. Another word is redemption. And in redemption, you and I, the sinners, are not in a court anymore. We're in the slave market. And we've got shackles around our hands. And we are in slavery. And then someone comes and pays our debt and sets us free and pays our ransom. And now we're free because of what Jesus did on the cross. Or, or then another word is adoption. And now you're not in the courtroom and you're not in the slave market. Now you're living on the street. And you've got no family and no home and no parent and no sibling. And suddenly someone comes and picks you up and puts you in their home, and gives you a new name, and a new set of parents, and new siblings, writes you into the will, and now you've been adopted because of what Jesus did on the cross. Well, another one of these great words is reconciliation. And in reconciliation, you're not in the courtroom, and you're not in the slave market, and you're not on the street. Reconciliation is the idea that you and I once had a relationship with God that has now been estranged. We're now enemies. And yet reconciliation is the idea that, that our irreconcilable differences have been overcome because of what Jesus did on the cross so that now you who are enemies are welcomed in God's house as friends, as family. That what Jesus is doing is he is bringing you back to the Father. And this is what I want you to hear. The gospel is, the good news of the gospel is that Jesus is now intending to present you to his Father. But it's almost as if he's saying, you can't go to the Father looking like you do right now. Your before won't do there, right? Because your before is alienated and hostile and doing evil things. And so the, the son says, here's what I'm going to do. I will take your alienation. And I will take your hostility. And I will take your evil deeds until it completely disfigures me. And I look like your before. And I will give you my holiness. And I will give you my blamelessness. And I will give you my above reproach until you look like me. This is the transaction of the gospel. He looks like my before so that I can look like him after. He takes my filthy sins and my wicked past and my every deed and puts it upon himself. And he gives me all his righteousness so that I look like his after. I want you to hear that. I mean, if I could press my illustration just one bit more, it'd be like this. You think of this. It'd be like this picture of this horrific before and then this glorious after. And you ask, how did that happen? How did you go from this, you know, morbidly sick, dying, unhealthy person to this fit, trim, perfect person? How did that happen? And imagine at that moment, I point to another person and I said, well, he ran his butt off and he worked out and he lived at the gym and he never touched sugar and he drank 
smoothies and ate vitamins. And on top of that, he got a heart attack, and now I look like this. I mean, it's ridiculous. You, you don't even have a, an illustration that rightly compares. So ridiculous is the good news of the gospel. Right? It'd be like a commercial that comes on and says, are you overweight and sick and dying and unhealthy? Well, well, do we have something for you? Here's a volunteer who's going to run for you and eat right for you and go to the gym for you and do everything right for you and he'll take your heart attack too and you'll come out perfect. That's what Colossians 1 says. That Jesus Christ took your evil and gave you his good by His reconciling death on the cross, so that you who were once alienated and hostile and doing evil are now holy and blameless and above reproach. And Seven Mile Road, I want you to hear, that has begun now. For you who are in Christ, yes, on the last day, God will finally present you, and you really will be holy. I mean, I don't even know if you can understand or grasp that. Could you let that in for a second? God is going to look at you and He's really going to see you as holy. Not just, oh, you were in Christ and positionally made holy. You're really holy. Really blameless. That the day is coming when you're going to stand before God and really you'll be above reproach. There won't be a case to be made against you. No accusation that could stick. You really are above the, the, any kind of reproach. That's really going to happen. And yet the good news is, if you are in Christ, that has begun now, today. Would you think of that? That's begun for you. It's not fully complete, but it's begun in you. This one preacher and reformer named Martin Luther, he used to give this illustration of a a sick man, mortally ill. And he'd go to a doctor, and the doctor has the one cure that can make him whole. And he said, as soon as the man put this pill in his mouth, the, the doctor declared, he's healed. He's healed. Now, on the one hand, he's not fully healed, right? It's it's still got to work its way down his throat and in his body, and it's got to do what it's going to do. And yet, it was enough for the man to say, the moment this begun, it's sure he's healed. So for the Christian who is in Christ, Jesus will finally present you to the Father holy and blameless and above reproach. And the wonder of it all is that has begun now. So that now itself, you've been fully healed. You you are becoming holy and blameless and above reproach. This was your before. And Paul's saying, verse 22, this is your after. So then there's only one last question, and I want to say this and we'll be done, which is, how do you know this has happened for you? How do you know if this is your story now? How do you know if... If there's any evidence to you being reconciled, how can you know sitting there today that this is true for you? Right? You can't leave here just hearing this is what God does and not know has it connected with you? Has it happened for you? So how do you know if you have been reconciled and if you have been transformed and if your before has turned into his after? How do you know? Verse 23 tells us. Because Paul says, if you want to know, here it is. If indeed you continue. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Paul saying, you want to know if this is true for you? Here's how you know. Are you continuing? If you continue. Now, 
it, it almost causes a bit of panic in us because it almost seems like God's going to give this and if you're not good enough, he's going to take it away. This is not you're going to get saved and then lose your salvation. This is, well, the only way to know if you were ever saved is if you continue. Continue is the evidence of the reality of the whole thing. The only way you know if you were ever saved is if you continue. If you continue. Paul's saying, I'm giving you a warning. And Paul is being very confident that his warning will be effective for the Colossians. He's confident that his warning will be effective for the Colossians. And so he's saying, if you want to stand holy and blameless and above reproach on that day, then it means that you've got to continue on this day. If you want to stand that way then, it means you've got to continue in the faith now. What Paul's trying to do is he's trying to save you from some kind of false security. And I want you to hear that. Because if you're a Christian, then even now my weak words will jolt your heart and splash water on your face and wake you up from your sleepy state. Because Paul, through his word, is going to say, if you don't have present tense love for God, you should have no security in your soul. You should have anxiety. What Paul wants to do is save you from any kind of false security. It'd be like if I went to a doctor and got a report and the doctor said, I'm very concerned about your health. I'm hearing this, I'm reading this, I'm very concerned. And if I said to the doctor, you don't have to worry about it. He said, no, 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 I'm, I'm very concerned. I'm looking at your results today. You're in grave danger. And I said, don't, don't worry about it. And he says, what gives you this confidence? Why would you say don't worry about it? And I say, I joined a gym a few years ago. Still have a subscription. They take money every month. You, 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 you're smirking because that's absurd, right? That'd be a fool. You can't bank your present health on some past moment. And Paul's saying, don't you dare for a moment think that if you're not continuing in faith today because you prayed a prayer five years ago that somehow that's all that matters. Don't you think for a second that because you signed a date in a Bible or raised your hand or walked down an aisle or responded in some way, don't you think for a moment because you were born into a church or you got baptized some years ago or there's a picture of you somewhere in, a, in a, an assembly that somehow that communicates to you your present tense state? Paul's saying, do you want to know if you will be finally reconciled then? Then it, it matters whether you're continuing in the faith now. And Paul's trying to splash cold water on your face. You who are slumbering and sleeping in your faith. And wake you up and say, if you don't today have a present tense love for God. If the things of God don't animate your heart. Don't move your heart. If God is not over and above all things, weak and sinful though you may be, then you need to be jolted to not rest in some kind of false security. Yes, this is all what Jesus did. But the only way to know if it applies to you is if you continue. Stable and steadfast, he says. These terms that would have been used with building. Right? In fact, it's the same word, stable and steadfast, that Jesus uses in his Sermon on the Mount when he says there's a house built on the rock and the rains come and the floods came, but it stood firm. And so he's saying those are the same words. Colossians, heresy is going to come and false teaching will come, but you must be stable and steadfast, not shifting in the hope of the gospel, which I preached to you and is going out throughout the whole world. 
And so Paul's saying to them, here's the mark of whether or not you have been reconciled, whether your before has now become an after. It's are you continuing in faith? And if not, then anxiety should grip your soul about your soul. If you've heard what Paul has to say and what the scriptures have to say today, here's what I'd leave you with. If you come to this place one way, you could literally leave here today different. You could have come here alienated, hostile, and doing evil. You could leave here today as holy and blameless and above reproach. And it won't have anything to do with what you do. It will have everything to do with what Jesus has done for you. And Jesus can do that for you today. And if you have been transformed by Jesus, then the question for you would be, are you continuing? Is there a present tense love and obsession with Jesus Christ? And what Paul wants to do in verse 23 is wake up your sleepy soul and warm your cold soul and and bring life again to your apathetic soul and say, continue in this faith. Don't shift. Be steady and steadfast, believing in this. And then rejoice with me that we were once this, but now through what Christ has done, we are now holy and blameless and above reproach. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the wonder of what you have done for us in Christ. We pray now even that the Spirit would give us opportunity to let this word sink into our hearts. Today is the day of salvation. And so we pray, O Lord, that today might be the day where you prompt and prod and poke at our hearts until we walk from alienation and and being hostile and doing evil into holiness and blamelessness and being above reproach that we would trust in Jesus who took our place. He did right when we did wrong. He took our wrong when we could do no right. And he died on that cross to reconcile us to God. And having done so, we pray that that would move us to continue in faith, that we would be stable and steadfast, not drifting, not sleeping, not in slumber, not in apathy, but with hearts that are fully engaged and in love with you, for all that you have done for us. Now come, do more than I know to ask. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The Lord loves you, and so he speaks his word of truth to you, and so the Lord loves you now and offers you himself through communion. In communion, it's a meal where no words are spoken, and yet it shouts loudly the gospel of Jesus Christ to you. Because when the bread is there, you are reminded of the body of Christ broken for you. And when you come to the cup, you're to be reminded of the blood of Christ shed for you. Here is what it took to reconcile you to God. You come to this meal, and what it is, is Jesus himself is the host. You were enemies.